Hello, my dear podcast listeners. This is Barry Kibrick with another episode of Between the Lines in a podcast version so that you can listen anywhere and anytime. This episode features Dr. Pippa Malmgrim. She is one of the most exceptional people on this planet. She's advised all governments, including our own and currently Britain's, on how to deal with the feelings we all have right now and the realities we all have right now that our institutions, almost all of them, are at an all-time low. But the book is not depressing. What the book is all about and what our conversation is all about is how we can take charge, bring back the institutions we so loved at one time to the way they should be. In fact, I don't want to say bring them back because that's never something Dr. Pippa Malmgren mentions. What she says is go forward to bring them where they should be. And that's what we're going to do today on this episode. I want to make sure you enjoy it. If you do, please subscribe to our podcasts. Please review it. Please give it a like. Share it with your friends. And if you really want to support our efforts on all levels from our podcast to our show, become a patron by visiting barrykibrick.com and see how you can become part of the Between the Lines family and our mission to create a deeper understanding of our world and a greater appreciation for our role in it. Enjoy the podcast. I'd love to know what you think. We all know that our world is rapidly changing in every level of our society. But what the future holds will be determined by our actions today. Hi, I'm Barry Kibrick, and my guest, Dr. Pippa Malmgren, is an expert who meets these challenges head-on every day. A former White House advisor and now advisor to the British government, she knows from the inside out what we must do to navigate our modern challenges. In her book, The Leadership Lab, with her co-author, Chris Lewis, the doctor explains what we must do to make a difference and build an empathic, stable, and strong future. Between the Lines with Barry Kibrick is made possible in part by Patreon. Patreon helps creators build and run membership businesses. From podcasters to writers, musicians, artists, and more. With tools that allow their fans to become patrons. More information is available at patreon.com. Dr. Pippa, it is a pleasure having you. After reading this book, I am so grateful that you've graced our set. Welcome to Between the Lines. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is fantastic. My pleasure. This book is is really written so that we understand what we have to do to reevaluate modern leadership. But I really believe that we are all leaders to a certain extent, and we all have to reevaluate what we're doing personally so that our leadership, quote, actually gets the message. So we really, especially in a democracy, we're in charge of our leaders. And if they're not doing the right job, we must. 
Yeah. And when I was writing this book with Chris Lewis, my co-author, that's very much how we were thinking. It's partly addressed to the leaders of today who are definitely in crisis. We see crisis in almost every category of leadership, political leadership, business leadership, religious community leadership, every category we see real crisis. But in the end, yeah, we decided it's really about every individual taking responsibility and thinking through what is the part they're going to play in a modern democracy? What's the vision of a society you want to have? We all have a voice in that. You say that the big shift comes from the fact that for so many years we did this reductionist thinking, the sort of, is that, would that be the right brain or the left brain? What is the reductionist? <laughs> I don't even remember, but it doesn't matter. We yeah. did one of the, on the right brain, the reductionist, and we really need to go to what you call the parenthetic, which is, as you described, a looking across. So it's not so much just a space and numbers that we've kept using. We need to look across the landscape of humanity. Yeah, you look, the whole education system and and the way the media looks at things, everybody is all focused on numbers and data and analytical analysis. But the problem is the analytical doesn't answer the question you also have to add the parenthetical, which means the ability to look across. So drill down into the data. But the problem is data is backward looking. It doesn't tell you about tomorrow. And it's not always linear. Sometimes life is cyclical. So data is fine. You can drill into it if you like. But you also have to look across, connect the dots between the silos, consider the landscape. Maybe the best way to put it is one thing is about math. The other is about mood, and both matter. And not only do they matter, you give a great example when you talk about the way they even mark how there's inflation, and they'll say, well, it's only 2.2%. Yet when in, in your book, as you read it, and by the way, you just talk to anybody you know, and everyone says, there's no 2 I go to that gas station, and I'm paying dollars more than I did just months ago, or you go to your, your doctor and you see the, the new medical prices and you see colleges that I remember the state colleges you could afford to go to. You can't sure. even afford to go to state colleges anymore. So that 2.2% number, that's the drill down number that they have from the past. But without looking across at the people, they're not really getting it, are they? No. And this is such a crucial point. My, my last book was called Signals, and it was about signals uh, that are not the data. And it was this point exactly. So the data point we call inflation, it's technically called the CPI. It's a data point that reflects an average. Now, some people will feel higher prices for rent, higher prices for groceries, higher prices for healthcare bills much sooner and faster than some others who may never feel them at all. They may, may never notice. So the real question is, who is hit first and hardest? And what is their human response to that phenomenon? And I would argue really strongly, populism has its roots in this phenomena where the officials all say, but the data point says only 2.2. But everybody's down at the bar going, this is incredible how much a glass of wine costs. And you can see it in something I call shrinkflation, which is when you pay the same price, but the size of what you're buying keeps getting smaller. And it doesn't matter whether it's you go to a restaurant and the steak is smaller or, you know, toilet paper rolls these days have less paper on them. You know, there's less fluid in any kind of a jar that you buy. And this is all indicative of more inflation pressures. And there's a human cost with that. What I think is the problem is the elevator doors are broken. And what I mean by that is 
after the financial crisis, we said to all the people who were at the top, and of which I was one, I worked in the financial markets, these people made a really big mistake and lost a lot of money and the loss has been thrown on to society and everybody has to pay for it for a long time. What was the response by the government to that? A blank check. You know, uh, basically the bailout was bigger than a wartime budget. So the people at the top in capitalism normally are they're supposed to come down the elevator when they fail, right? They say that, you know, capitalism without failure is like Catholicism without sin, right? The game doesn't work unless there's failure. And similarly, people who are at the bottom who can't get into college because they can't afford to pay for it, those folks, how do they go up the elevator? And when I talk to chief executives, political leaders all over the world, and I ask them, when they say, I'm so worried about populism, and they say, um, I, I want to do something about it, I say, okay, when's the last time you hired someone who didn't have a college degree, who maybe was displaced, who didn't have a traditional path? And they say, never. And I'm like, okay, you close the elevator doors, they can't go up. No wonder they're trying to break the system. It's not working for them. Oh, and you say, in fact, that the biggest problems that our leaders don't have by them not looking across at that particular situation, which you say is their need for situational fluency Mm -hmm. so that they can be understanding the situations that are really going on and not just be in their, as you call, echo chambers and silos. Totally. So it's a fascinating human phenomena. But the higher you go and the busier you are, the less time you have to assess what's actually going on. And often you're surrounded by fewer and fewer people that you've known forever longer, who maybe are equally disconnected from what's really going on. So what you end up saying is stuff that indicates you're operating on a snapshot that's out of date. Like a lot of leaders will say, China is the future because all the jobs are going to China. And I say, but as an economist, I can see that Mexico is more competitive than China. Its wages are 20 to 40 percent cheaper. The Chinese are investing in Mexico like crazy. Just look at the new airport they're building. And so actually, it's, it's going to sound strange. We're here in L.A., but I grew up surfing. It's like surfing. You literally have to understand it's not a snapshot. It's a permanently fluid situation you have to keep checking all the time. So the reality is that... Actually, the U.S. is very competitive now versus China, where it wasn't 10 years ago. But if you're making public policy on the assumption that it is not competitive, you're out of date. But also, as you said about the mood, the people don't feel that we're competitive. That's where it really lies in. That's where I say the danger really is, is that if we're not feeling this, it doesn't matter. And by the way, I don't want things to be based just on feelings, that would be inappropriate. As you say, you need not more of one or more of the other. You need to bring them together. So here's an example. I have a friend who's the chief executive of one of the largest auto parts companies in America. And she said her biggest problem was hiring talent. And she decided to start hiring 18-year-olds instead of only college graduates. And she would build their skills and pay for their college, pay for their graduate school. Guess who the biggest opponents were? The parents and the teachers, because their vision of manufacturing was stuck in the Victorian era. So she had to hire a bus to bring the parents and the teachers and the students all to the factory, which, of course, is like a surgical lab. It's so pristine to show them what modern manufacturing looks like. So it's kind of jumping back to a 1950s model where IBM trains you. That's happening. That's real. 
But is that the narrative? Is that the story? No, the story is all the jobs are going to China. So we have to be very careful about how we tell our stories and that they're accurate. But you also say that the way to get there is that if the people telling the stories, and this goes from the media to the leaders, if they have virtues, if they have, in fact, you even say spiritual virtues, you go that far as saying, if we do not and they do not have this sort of basic of, of, of a culture that we, we know is the way to do things, what, what's going to happen? So a simple way of thinking about this is 20th century leadership was all about the leader, right? The Jack Welsh era, the cult of the iconic leader. We're arguing 21st century leadership is all about the ship. If, if you're a leader, your goal, your purpose, your job is not about your self-aggrandizement. It's about how to get the ship to work together, how to pull the best talent out of the people that are part of your organization, whether it's in politics or religion or community or business, it doesn't matter. The point is the ship approach is now what we need. And this is exactly what we were trying to explain in this book. And that's why you say leadership used to be thought of as a science, but it's really an art. Definitely. Absolutely. So, for example, a lot of leaders have to-do lists, right? We all have to-do lists. But what they really need is a to-be list. Because if you're going to exemplify values, which is the only way that people feel they can trust what you stand for... You can't do values. You have to be them. And that's why these crises that we're seeing in leadership, for example, the lying about the emissions controls from the automotive industry, uh, the sex scandals that we're seeing in the Catholic Church, um, the scandals around companies not paying all their taxes, all these things create a much more fundamental crisis of trust in institutions, in society, Because at the core, the question is, what are the values? So again, 20th century leaders were all about the letter of the law. 21st century leaders, it's got to be adherence to the spirit of the law. But again, with all this information now comes another problem. We have tremendous amount of information, but we are not necessarily getting the true information. So much is misleading or purposely, as you even say in the book, media is a business and they're there to make money. So no matter what they want to report, they're going to report. But the point is, we are overloaded with information and we are lacking a lot of knowledge and wisdom. So the information overload is a crucial component of what we talk about in the book, because leaders need to understand why everybody is so angry why there's so much impatience. And it really has to do with modern technology. We are so much more connected electronically with so much less conversation. There's this amazing interconnectedness of human beings. And at the same time, the sense of atomization, people feel alienated, not connected. And we can see this in the numbers of uh, adults who are living together, sharing a roof because they can't afford to pay for that roof by themselves, but not in partnered relationships. And in fact, younger people, particularly young men, not being in a partnered relationship or having any kind of a love interest until they're much older, into their mid-20s, 
And if leaders don't understand this is what's happening to society, it's very hard to be a leader in that environment. Well, you say the first task of enlightened leadership is cultivated doubt. So what's happening is we're there, as you said, confidence is not a, I forgot the exact way you put it, confidence is not an excuse for competence. Am well, I correct? Actually, it, 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 or is we confuse we confu- confidence and competence. Exactly. And, and, and until the leaders themselves, and, and again, it's up to us to make this happen, till they see the doubt themselves, yeah. they're never going to, to change. So here's the first thing. We've got to move our leaders away from prediction and towards preparedness. Now, prediction is what happens when they say, Trump will never win. And how many times did we hear people say that? Or, you know, I live in the UK. Brexit will never happen. This is prediction and it's binary and it's a mugs game. What makes sense is saying, we have no idea what's going to happen. So let's consider a huge array of possibilities. Let's open our minds to all kinds of scenarios because testing ourselves against that wide array of possible outcomes is going to make us a lot more robust and agile and able to deal with stuff. The reason our leaders are blindsided is because they're all into the cult of the infallible leader, and I am predicting, and I say, President Trump will never win. Okay, now we have a mess because you weren't prepared. So in the book, we're very focused on how to move people away from prediction to preparedness. And that's rooted in certainty. The moment a leader says, I am certain, they are immediately grounded in mediocrity. You cannot be anything but mediocre if you're certain. Now, the other thing that you say we're missing is patience. In fact, impatience is one of the biggest blocks we have. We no longer have that time. I think you used the quote by Einstein to just be creative in by doing nothing. We are so impatient. We're running around like chickens without our heads. And I've seen this over and over in organizations that I'm associated with. I'm going, what's, what's the rush here? Why do you need this tomorrow? Why are you not thinking through this? Why? And no one is. They're just acting and reacting. Yeah, well, again, you know, the speed electronics are giving us, we can choose a partner by swiping right or swiping left. Uh, people get, they get uh, enraged if they can't get to their website within two seconds. Anything over two seconds, they sw- shift to something else. So this is a very interesting phenomena we have to really think about. Chris's last book was called Too Fast to Think, a fantastic bestseller, where he interviewed a bunch of highly creative people and found out the best solutions, the best answers are epiphanies in life. They come when we are not at work, when we are not working, and when we're not trying. But what do we do when we have a big problem? And let's face it, we've got a lot of problems in society today. We hold more meetings. We stay in the office longer. We work harder. No, stop, turn it off, do something else, and it will come to you. Now, this I was not expecting to find in the book, but you say the role of humor. And in oh, fact, yeah. because you, <laughs> I had the British version, and I'm looking, who spells humor this way? But <laughs> it, 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 uh, right, it was. <laughs> I lived in England. Am I right? It's <laughs> and I looked at it and I said, but, and that started me laughing, but we, we forget that that's an important role. We're, what, what happens is, what we're basically taking out are the human elements. And what you're basically saying is bring them back in. Absolutely. And we have to preserve these parts of human beings because 
that's where innovation comes from. And humor is such a crucial part of innovation. If you look at so many of the most amazing discoveries in history, they almost always happen when somebody started to laugh at a situation. This also comes to a really core concept, which we call the church of fail, which is we have to worship the failures because that's where the learning comes from. We can't condemn people for trying and failing. We have to encourage people to try and fail and like Emerson says, try and fail faster because that's where we get progress and innovation. Back to leadership. Leadership isn't just about the political leader at the top or the CEO. You know, I run a robotics company. Every time I try to innovate and do something new, making commercial drones, that's I'm, I'm expressing leadership because I don't put legs on my drones. I put wheels on my drones because they won't break as easily. And everyone goes, that's crazy. We've never seen this before. This is my way of expressing leadership to try to change how the industry works. But as that leader, if you're going to encourage the failure and to and the mistakes, you know, you have to have a certain humility. And that's been also a problem with the older fashion type of leadership. It was, again, where we went overconfidence and not humility. And the humility, even the greatest, the really the great leaders, that is what they have, humility. Yes. And this is why it's so important to stop confusing confidence with competence. They are two totally different things. Um, when we hold meetings, how often is it that whoever talks first, loudest, and longest wins the point? We can change that. We can, when we talk a lot about tools you can use to change this, or you can say, equal time, everybody's going to get five minutes. Suddenly, the quieter, more reflective voices, not so arrogant, more humble, get airtime. So we need to, to do this. And that's a particular issue, by the way, with women. And we do talk a lot about gender in the book, because the core thing we're arguing for is more diversity of thinking. Now, more diversity of people helps that. And and we're not into diversity of people because it's nice, though it is. It's because it's efficient. It's because it gets better outcomes. You get better profitability, better performance, more trust. And so if you want diversity of thinking, you have to make space for voices that are not overconfident. Well, you know something? In fact, one of the things we do on this show is we have a little element called afterwards. And I'm going to save that whole gender talk for our (laughs) online, because you approach it very differently. And I want to really, you really approach it very (laughs) differently. And I want to save that. That's going to be for our, our, what we call our afterwards features, which is always online immediately after the show airs so people can see it right away. But right before we go there, actually, you know what? That does bring, though, in one of the things that you say is the core motto, and that's the motto of the U.S. itself, e pluribus unum. Out of many comes one. That goes back to that diversity, but it's got to be careful. It's not just diversity for diversity's sake. As you said, that's still nice. It has to be diversity for the thought process. That's where it really lies. If you're picking people of any color, of any gender, of any race, of any ethnicity, and they're all still thinking like you, you do not have diversity. Yeah. And so this is such an interesting point because both Chris and I hear a lot of Americans, a lot of Brits, people around the world, they'll say, 
my society is divided. We're all arguing all the time, and this is very bad. We say, well, you know, actually, there are lots of societies where you're not allowed to argue, where you're not allowed to have a dissenting opinion. Um, you know, we look at the Chinese social credit system that they've introduced where they actually create a score for every human being based on their level of social compliance. And if you don't comply, if you Google stuff you shouldn't Google, then they lock you down into digital prisons. You can't take a train. You can't take a plane. If you really want a strong society and you believe in democracy, creating an environment where divisions of opinion can happen is important. The question is, what's the tone that we use? And that's why, you know, we live in a world right now where people are very much like, if you don't agree with me, you're either an idiot or evil. Okay, now we cannot have civil society and a civil dialogue. Oh, I have to say something. I, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but you have one of the great lines in the book is simply this. You say, people now are more concerned with their children marrying out of their political party than they are out of their religion or any other ethnic thing. In the t- and that when I, when I read that, I <laughs> shared it with my wife and we both just started laughing because we see how true that really is. Yeah, so tolerance... And just because you tolerate other opinions doesn't mean that you share them, but it's very important. And it's important in a bigger way, which is to get out of your own clique, your own network, your own bubble. Uh, you know, I, I was recently speaking um, at, at um, the Google Zeitgeist conference and Senator Clinton's former uh, advisor on communications was there. And we were talking about how did they miss what had happened, the sea change in American politics. And it really came down to they just weren't talking to anybody outside their circle. Well, this is a problem for all of us. We all need to get outside of our circle, outside of our comfort zone, go learn new skills that are in areas that we've never been involved with before, go meet people that are totally different from ourselves, because that generates tolerance. Which is why you say learning and leading must go hand in hand. Thank you, doctor, so much for helping us learn about leading. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. And thank you for joining us. I said that there was going to be another segment with Dr. Pippa Malmgram. This time, we're going to be focusing on the difference that gender makes when it comes to decisions in leadership. And you will be amazed at what you'll hear because it's not your standard definition of what the problem is. But before we get to that part of the episode, I want to leave you with something very inspirational that Dr. Pippa Malmgren left in her book. She said, the promise of the future is exciting and inspirational. If we get it right, she says, we're looking at an infinitely more sustainable, fairer, productive and efficient world with greater access to education and information, a world that is healthier, better led, more optimistic and inclusive. And I like to end with my own words. The difference between a promising future and one we may not appreciate is all up to us. So be excited and inspirational And we will live in a healthier world that is more optimistic and inclusive. And now, here comes the part I spoke about. When Dr. Pippa Malmgren and I 
discuss the role of gender differences. As I said, you will be amazed at what she thinks and believes. Doctor, it was such a wonderful conversation. And, and as I teased in the show, I want to talk about gender differences because you really do approach it in the book in a different way. And that is not so much that we need gender differences as we did talk about diversity just for the sake of gender differences. We need it because we need to really appreciate the way women think, the way men think. Not that they should, and by the way, sometimes they overlap, sometimes they crisscross, but the point is we need the diversity of their thought. So if women are really rising through the top because they're just thinking like men, we're not really getting the diversity we really need and we really must have it. Yeah, you know, uh, Chris and I laugh because I get approached about sitting on boards of directors because of my background in politics and business. And But I do feel sometimes that they're just trying to tick that box that they have got a woman on the board and what they really want, and I'm putting this really bluntly, but they're looking for a man in a dress. And actually, I don't have permission to bring all of what I am about into that room. This is a problem. And before we even get into this, let me just also say this is not only about gender diversity. We're very big on diversity of ethnicity, income levels, education levels, neuroplasticity, how your brain is wired. We need diversity on many counts, but maybe the easiest way to think about it is it's like a keyboard of possibilities. And at one end of that keyboard, you might have, say, a really bottom line, arguably very masculine way of thinking. We can argue about what's masculine and feminine, but let's say P&L, profit and loss, that this has to define all the decisions. But Actually, there are times when protecting the, um, uh, the nation, the company brand, the community might hang on compassion and empathy for the voters, for the customers, for the employees. And that will do more to preserve that P&L in the long run than the temporary, immediate financial decision. What we need are more people, not men or women, but people who can play the full keyboard of possibility and who know when is the right time to hit the PL key and when is the right time to hit the compassion key. Because right now we got leaders who are playing chopsticks at one end of this thing and we need people who can play the symphony. And we need them to come from all of the diversity that is out there. Because Absolutely. again, you can find that there would be a very masculine male who might be extremely empathetic. Of and course. there could be a very feminine woman who is not. Like, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's a very interesting. So that's why I, I love the way you approach it in the book. It's still bottom line has to do with values and values, no matter how you slice it, are still the most important component to not only leadership as the book is about, but as we discussed earlier, to our own internal leadership. No, absolutely. And, and that's why you know, one of the tools that we put in the book is about not just having a to-do list, but have a to-be list because you can't do values. You can only be values. And you have to decide, what do I stand for? What are my values? What, what am I going to present to the world? Because that's where trust comes from. And so how much time do we spend on this? Very little. And unfortunately, our time on this 
is also up. But doctor, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank it was a you. pleasure. Thank you. So am I right? I told you she was amazing. So again, I'm going to ask you, my dear listeners, if you liked our podcast, please subscribe. Please give us a review. Share it with your friends. And please write me about it at barrykibrick.com. I'd love to hear what you thought. Also, you might really want to become a patron of our show because there are so many extra benefits that you can enjoy from transcripts to emails with me to phone conversations, you name it. It's all available there for you and it also helps keep our show going. So please visit barrykibrick.com and give it a good thought. You might enjoy becoming a part of our family of viewers and listeners.